0: younger generations exceeding their parents, society will devolve rather than than progress
1: forward. Most good-meaning parents do want to see their children exceed them, I think it's a...
0: But if one is empty on the inside and they hope to have a child so that they're unconditionally loved...
1: You're going to have to uh, create some sort of extreme revolution... Welcome to How to Be an Adult, a podcast created by the practitioners
0: at the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada. This show is the guide for life that you should have received when you turned 18, but didn't. For those of you who've inadvertently become adults, we're going to give you a philosophy of
1: life that's worth having. I'm Luke Chell. And I'm Pascal Langdale. And we share our thoughts here to democratize a key aspect of adulthood, which is self-assurance.
0: Now that we've covered childhood lessons you have to unlearn, Let's talk about why you have to exceed your parents in adult life. Now, I know this episode has the potential to ruffle some feathers because who wants to be exceeded? Yet, I'm going to make the very bold claim that for society to evolve, for society to, to become more accepting, more tolerant, we have to exceed the limitations and the biases of prior generations. And that this is a long tradition going back to the dawn of time. And without this pattern of younger generations exceeding their parents, society will devolve rather than, than progress forward.
1: There is the idea of exceeding each generation. And there's also this uh, archetypal idea of uh, uh, each child has to, in quotes, kill the father and remove themselves from the mother. And this is quite a, a, a frequent narrative in a lot of stories. So it's something that has Existed in stories for thousands of years. This idea of transcending the past and exceeding your parents—I don't think it's—if it ruffles feathers, it's been ruffing, ruffling feathers for thousands of years. And I would suggest that the people who's who find that who actually find that a sort of a problem are probably not quite adults themselves. In the sense that, with uh, yeah, with my own children, I now understand why it was that my dad could look at me being young and doing all the things. And on the, the one hand. Envying that youth but on the other hand being so happy that I was making my way in the world and it's a it's a double-edged sword for sure But I think most good meaning parents do want to see their children uh, Exceed them. I think it's a it's like your job
0: I would suggest that if we internalize this idea that it's not only acceptable but it is the norm to exceed one's parents then we don't have to feel as much shame exceeding them, let's say, financially. And I mean, part of the reason for the podcast is we don't all have parents who encouraged us and loved us and took care of us and gave us lessons for life that are worth keeping in adulthood. So hopefully, b- between the two of us, we can help our listeners to understand the, the necessity of exceeding one's
1: parents. And I, I think that some of this also comes down to the role and relationship between child and parent changing over time and the parent being able to accommodate those changes without being so egocentric i mean you can't you, you can't tell a baby okay you know you're on your own mate it's uh, it's that dependency is a part of growing up it's when that stays and when that when that relationship doesn't change with time and doesn't adapt to the, the child as they are becoming. It's the difference between having a bonsai
0: tree <laughs> versus having a plant that you wish to nurture and and to see grow as the plant wishes to to grow naturally. Among certain antinatalist circles, there is sometimes talk about parenthood requiring a license, just like driving a car requires a license, owning a farm requires a license because of the harm you could do. Well, becoming a parent should... According to some people require a license, and I would say that as part of the examination process for this, you know very oppressive authoritarian Parenting license that we're talking about (laughs) the, The applicant should be able to demonstrate That they want a child to nurture the child not to have like a bonsai tree that they cut down to size And I think that that's the distinction between parents who wish for their children to exceed them and then parents who are terrified of their children Exceeding them if one has as we talked about in past episodes a cup that's full and overflowing Then they're happy for their child when their child Succeeds but if one is empty on the inside and they hope to have a child so that they're unconditionally loved then one, they're going to be disappointed and mistaken, but two, in trying to use the child to fill up their emptiness, th- they're likely to then make egregious errors in parenting well, I, when the I,
1: child achieves you know, freedom. Well, yeah, I'd say that it's a, it's a uh, repeated cycle. If you have a parent who is still essentially locked in a teenager or a child perspective in major parts of their life. Then seeing your child exceed you threatens you. It's a reminder of your mortality. It's a reminder of your age. It's a reminder of your inflexibility and lack of imagination as you've grown old. It's a reminder of all the things that you lost. And I think that it takes an adult, I would say a decent adult with these, these traits that we are discussing now, to be able to effectively raise an adult. Or at least if you're a. An ongoing learner of being an adult. You know that your behavior affects your children. You know that you have a responsibility to fix those parts of you and amend your behaviors in a way that means that they are seeing good examples of adulthood and good examples of behavior rather than learning the bad ones. I don't know if anybody would have given me a license beforehand. <laughs> and I don't think, these are the other things, I don't think anybody can really prepare themselves in any way for for having kids. It's, it's, it's like the perfect uh, storm of needing to be both adaptable, but also wise. I often kind of
0: slag 20th century parenting. <laughs> so if you know like Benjamin Spock and, and so on, there's also a trend of letting kids cry things out and just neglecting them essentially. So I often slag 20th century parenting, but I mean, even in 2023, we hardly have everything figured out. But that is why, like you, I, I hope that future generations exceed my generation and and yours, and definitely generations older than than us. It is because we're not perfect. It is because there are mistakes in parenting that we're making in the 2020s for sure. And future generations are going to have more knowledge about developmental psychology, more of of an interconnected world, hopefully more peace and tolerance and equality. And, you know, younger people are going to be better adapted to, to those times and unfortunately, if I grew up in the 1990s with like a 1990s view of, of the global village as the term we used to use, <laughs> th- th- then maybe in 2050 or, or 2060, I'm not as well adapted as younger generations born in the 2030s or, or the 2040s.
1: I mean, there is a role for even as an adult to still maintain being current with change so that is also we will discuss that and if if we haven't already but I think that that fresh take on the world that comes from youth and you see it generation after generation is not to be dismissed as naivety either by younger people or by adults it's an energy that is required to introduce a certain amount of chaos into uh, something which is established Otherwise, there, there would be no change. Change means disruption. And you can, there's obviously an argument about what's good change and what's not good change and and the pace of change and how used to and welcoming you are to change. Those are like secondary questions. But that change must occur and that requires disruption of standard norms is the rule of human progress.
0: We've all heard the term paradigm shift, right? Often in the context, unfortunately, of Business and corporate speak. But the origin of the term is in Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he identified this pattern where, unfortunately, older generations of scientists have to either retire or actually pass away before new ideas can finally take root. So even Albert Einstein could not completely wrap his head around quantum mechanics. It's only kind of once he passed away that quantum mechanics started to take take root. And that's an example of a paradigm shift in the scientific context.
1: There's another story that reminds me of, which is, I think it's the development of the Protestant church. And bear with me. So there had been various inquisitions, you know, trying to keep the Catholic Church in the UK, and there were wars over it, and it was, it was you know, Protestantism was not a comfortable thing to be. And so it, it did exist, but it didn't flourish. And then a lot of people say, well, it's because of Henry VIII, and he needed to get a divorce, and that's why it all sort of happened. But the Black Death may have had more to do with that than actually any single person, because what it did is it killed off a whole generation of older clerical members who were resistant against change. And so you were left with a younger generation who had very different ideas and who now could actually start making those changes without the resistance from an older, more traditional clerical group.
0: This is why I hope so ardently that younger people exceed me in my views, which were largely formed in the 20th century. So people being born today could quite possibly be alive to see the 22nd century. And definitely the social mores, the norms, the culture in that Future is going to be different yet. People are being born today. that are gonna have to be adapted to that So just as people in the late 20th century Abandoned many of the ways of the mid 20th century and then people in the mid 20th century abandoned many of the ways of the early 20th century and So on and so on going back to the dawn of time I actually hope for the future to be better than the past and that's why I hope that younger generations completely upstage me and, like, my 20th century views about whatever it might be, as long as, you know,
1: they are indeed improving upon these views. Well, well that, and that's the thing, because you could always, there's always the possibility of going back into the Dark Ages, and it, it takes, an, you know, a new period of enlightenment in order to sort of crawl out of that um so that begs the question then okay change but change change for change sake is not necessarily good not all changes are good so how do you how do you sort the wheat from the chaff how do you figure out what to, what do you take from your parents that worked for them and their parents and so on because we have survived as a uh a species through a series of progressions and expansions and, and new understandings. I think the litmus test is whether the,
0: the change would apply universally. So the, the kinds of ideas that were originated, let's say, 2,500 years ago, that have made it through many, many generations and the Dark Ages and so on, and that we still celebrate today. So Stoic thought, for example, various religions that are that old. The very fact that as a 21st century human being, I can read Epictetus, who was a slave in the Roman Empire, um, at least before he was freed, and what he says is relevant— Right. This means that the ideas transcend not just me being a 21st century human being, but me being part of the Anglo Sphere, and, and me, you know, being kind of a nerd, and me, you know, with my gender and my race and my age, and, and so on. These ideas that transcend individuals, I think, are much more likely to stand the test of time. And to cast our minds back to the time of Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, also contributed to Stoic thought in ways that I deeply resonate with. So if you have ideas that an emperor and a slave, who are contemporaries, agree with, then probably those ideas will also generalize thousands of years later. And th- they'll generalize probably thousands of years from now, as long as we human beings are still
1: around. but so, so here's, here's an example of a good idea that persists and one that doesn't. You mentioned uh, Oedipus. So the observation of the necessity for the child to transcend the parent and the penalties of not doing so. Also there's something about in there about honesty and lying, incidentally. you know so there's a lot of lessons there that you could uh, draw upon. but at the same time. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same time, but let's say um, uh, Greek Dramatic History also included the idea that you could condemn a person to death and then say they have to be killed on stage as part of a play, which, which of course, is bonkers. Now, that, that idea didn't persist, although maybe maybe you might want it to uh, Some people might, crazy people might want that to happen, but it doesn't, right? So
0: that's an example of an idea that doesn't generalize because we might want that guy to die on stage, but we wouldn't want me. I wouldn't want me to die on stage. I wouldn't want you to die on stage. So automatically, even without looking at the passing of time, the idea does not generalize it. That idea had to die on the vine. But if there were some kind of idea that, that everyone in the theater would agree with and, and, and benefit from, that idea that universalizes to everyone in the theater is more likely to also stand the test of time.
1: OK, so we've, we've isolated persistence across time. We've isolated the idea of good ideas that remain universal and uh, if like, scalable across people and culture. What do you see as the obstacles to seeing those things or identifying them? What are the temptations and pitfalls?
0: I think that this modern trend of identity politics that (laughs) neglects the common humanity and looks at qualities that usually were born with and didn't actually decide, I I think that this trend away from universalism is detrimental because it doesn't give people principles that are going to last the test of time. Just like these principles don't even transcend certain individuals, Or certain groups of individuals. Now, I I am kind of, you know, just slightly dipping my toes in the culture wars here, Um, but Universalism used to be quite a liberal leftist idea, that it'll be the same set of rules and laws for Christians and Jews and Muslims and so on. And this was celebrated as a fantastic thing. I I am, you know, I'm, I guess, a 20th century kind of liberal. In that, I, I think that the trend toward identity politics is making the world more racist, more sexist, more divided, more bitter, um, and it's harder to maintain relationships while we politely and civilly disagree. And that, you know, what I kind of grew up with in, in the 80s yeah. and the 90s, where we could, you know, maintain so, relationships and disagree, that that, that that was a better norm.
1: So, so so here we go. So so then you've got to say, well, okay, so I consider myself a somewhat an, a, an old-fashioned, pro-enlightenment, liberal Democrat, right? But then the question is, well, you know, somebody's going to turn around and say to me, no, you're wrong. Right? This is, you're just out of date. You've got to update your map, my friend, is incorrect and was good for the 90s, but is not good for now, right? well, Can you be so, more specific? So for instance, there could be an argument that says that, that I, new ideas require extremes in order to be sorted out. And I've heard this argument. I, I personally, I'm, I'm not fully convinced, but the idea is that if you want to affect change, Either you've got to wait for all the old clerics to die, or alternatively, you're going to have to uh, create some sort of extreme revolution or, or create an extreme in order to open up the doors to the possibility of the kind of change which it resets back to. It's the idea that you're pushing something in order to increase the range and then you're going to pull back to the reasonable ground.
0: I think there's always going to be conservatives and liberals in society because they each play a role and it's a different role. The conservatives exist to advocate for the way we've been doing things, for, for the way things have been. And then the liberals exist to advocate for a new way of doing things, and it's this kind of dialectic between these two forces that produces the middle ground without violent revolution or a a plague that kills a third of the population. And for that dialectic
1: to work, it has to be a dialectic. It absolutely has to, which is why I'm concerned about the state of the world. Right, because one of the things that we're talking about so far as qualities we need to integrate as adults is the ability to be disagreed with, the ability to disagree, and uh, emotional self-regulation. As soon as you remove that potential for a dialectic, then you're removing the possibility of profiting from chaos. If you are raising uh, uh, children and their emotional self-regulation is all over the place and uh, maybe their perception of fear is, is, is extended and there's all these things going on. If you just say, oh, it's just a teenager and dismiss how they feel and dismiss them, that's not going to work either, right? So, and I'm not making, I'm not making parallels between modern approaches and teenagers. I'm saying that that introduction of chaos and the, the youthful introduction of chaos in, into, say, liberal norms, has its role and it's important that you and I get prodded and it's important that you and I then say okay well we'll listen we'll we'll try and understand your point of view and we will adapt with new information and we will uh, accept that you know when we when falsehoods are revealed but that's part of being an adult right so if you've got two people one who's you've got one person who's uh, introducing chaos into I say chaos in a in a good way, you know, disrupting a traditional norm, and you've got somebody who's questioning or resisting, so that's conservative and liberal in traditional terms, then you've got to have both of them have got to be adult enough to be able to discuss it rather than, say, fall back to a childhood point of view, which would be to stamp your foot and say, I'm out of here.
0: I think it's important to treat our fellow human beings as basically intelligent moral mm. thinking beings because as soon as you write the other side off as crazy or foolish you're basically going to start gaslighting them yeah so if we instead recognize that the, the, the opposing view comes from an intelligent moral human being then we must consider their point of view and possibly then extract the value in that opposing point of view. The main point I wanted to convey is that conservatives make better managers, better administrators and bureaucrats, and liberals make better entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs in the world to start new businesses, to disrupt models of business that just don't work that well and aren't that efficient. And then you know the entrepreneur gets bored, and that's when the professional managers come in to manage a business that's already been started, that's already gained market share. I'm putting this in very capitalistic <laughs> terms. the The idea is that there is a role for for the conservative line of thinking after the ground has been broken by those who've kind of gone first and have taken the risks that they created chaos, or what do you call mm-hmm. it, creative
1: destruction? Uh, yeah, destruction, or, or, or just disruption, really. I mean, But then you're also going to have uh, conservatives saying, look, don't break that ground. Don't dis- don't disrupt that. That's perfectly fine as it is. And we also know that that doesn't work, too. Well, no, because the other person's yeah, an yeah.
0: intelligent, moral person with autonomy and self-determination and agency. Yeah. Smoking rates have gone down over time. And The last time I checked, it was something like 10% of the population, whereas it used to be a full quarter or a full third of the population would smoke cigarettes. At some point, probably by the end of the century, we'll see tobacco smoking as like lining your home with asbestos. It's something that people used to do, not knowing any better. And once we knew better, we stopped
1: doing it. That that does make me think of the idea that change occurs and part of it is the acceptance of new information. Okay, so you've got the PR period where essentially you're sowing like a social contagion. Smoking is good for you. And then because you see other people smoking, you assume that, well, everybody kind of knows that this is a good thing, so I shall smoke too, and this makes me feel good, and makes me look good, and it's associated with all these things. But it's just, it is, it is in effect, a social contagion, because ultimately cigarettes are not as addictive as heroin, as is often claimed. So the reason to be a smoker was a, was a good proportion of it. It was like a social acceptance that it was a good idea and then you have the awful situation where they knew it was going to kill you they knew it was going to create cancer but still sold it and that's when the again that's when the rage at the establishment can rear its head and say you knew better you're the the people that came before you lied to us we can never trust you again which is fair i think <laughs> i don't blame that sentiment at all but but here you have an example of it's not just new information because new information may exist it's the uh, acceptance of that new information as a truth. And that there are, if you like, sometimes conservatism can, what well, I call it toxic conservatism, it goes beyond just keeping things the way they are into forcing and withholding information in order to stop change. So one of the things that you could say about good ideas persisting is that if you go back to the axiom that you should always try and peer through things to get at the truth of something then that will that will be a good approach as an adult and historically there's been a lot of examples of this where because other people buy into the idea that something is good or correct or true you then assume that that is also good and correct and true and if you are, well, I said, one of the one of the qualities of being an adult is that you're not dependent on other people's opinions and you're not dependent on other people's truths. You search for them yourself. So, in this context, you'd be well, okay, yeah, everybody everybody thinks it's fine, it's great, and then evidence starts coming around that actually, no, it's not good for you and it will kill you and it's actually pretty awful. And the old guard, if you like, the the uh, the cigarette companies deliberately hid that evidence. At which point, you could argue, well, it's one thing to have new information. It's another thing to be able to accept or to actually get hold of that information and understand what the truth is. And as a child, you have no way of dealing with that at all. You have to depend on your parents for so much, for their knowledge, their wisdom, to keep you alive. They know how to cook, they know how to clean, they know how to do math. There's millions of things, right? But if you've gained the age of majority and you have an axiom that says that the pursuance of truth is to the best of your ability a good thing and that what is accepted as true may or may not be true i mean that's a, as in you have to assess things in your for your own um validity your your the own hence exceeding your parents yeah exceeding your parents exactly and using your own eyes and your own ears and your own uh, autonomy it's highly surprising that there was a lot of anger about that, and also a lot of, you know, why would I respect any elder person in their conservatism? Because every time, a, every time that happens, it just gives more fuel, if you like, to the distrust, rather than encouraging, as we were talking about, the idea of a discussion between two sides. Well,
0: there's a difference between a person and the ideas contained within the person. And it's similar to the distinction between your cell phone and the apps that you've installed (laughs) on your cell phone, where you don't have to toss the whole phone if you don't like the app that you're running. You can just delete that one app and install a different app that's more to your liking. And it is a mistake if we discard the whole phone when we could just do a software update or an app update. also is, I would assert, a mistake to discard a whole person, Mm. elderly and conservative or not, when their ideas are changeable. Now, whether that particular person is going to be amenable to you trying to change their worldview, that's a different story. But, you know, we have big brains relative to our body sizes. We're very adaptable because that's what our species does. So to kind of see a person as their views that hmm. conflates software and hardware that we don't even do for self in a way that we don't even do for cell phones. But then to kind of separate the person from the ideas, that, that that recognizes they could also be on a lifelong journey of learning and growing and adapting.
1: And I suppose that if you have this idea that when you you step out into the world you're 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 working with a you're already working with an out-of-date map. Whatever it is that you're Parents went through, like my, my dad was the first in his family to go to university. I, I think he actually went and, and did the equivalent of STEM and became an engineer. But back in those days, that that wasn't necessarily true. You would do any kind of degree and then you'd walk into any kind of job, right? Which is kind of different to now. And then he had a job for life, which, of course, in my generation was un, became increasingly unheard of. And so his map for how a life is lived and the certitudes of his generation were not the certitudes of mine, and in the same way the certitudes of my generation are not gonna be those uh, that work for my children's lifetime. So that that goes back to the idea, well, that you've gotta have axioms and principles when you finally step out as an autonomous adult that persist regardless of the world that you're walking into. They've gotta persist at any time, they've gotta work at any time in history, they've gotta work in any culture so that you could literally be picked up and dropped off anywhere, and you would still survive and perhaps do pretty well.
0: It's why I'm a universalist. Mm -hmm. It's why I'm trying to figure out, okay, what do all human beings have in common? Because if we kind of figure out the truth of what all human beings have in common, then I am set for whatever the future holds. And then if I share these principles with others, they're also set for whatever the unknown, uncertain future holds. So let's say that someone's just turned 18 and they're about to choose a university. Well, maybe they're going to go to a whole new country. But the the, the principle of being decent and kind to your fellow human beings, the, the principle of believing your own senses above your preconceived notions, these kinds of principles will hold anywhere in the world, which to me, makes them worthwhile principles to
1: have and in doing that that leaves the door open to exceed your parents Uh, absolutely
0: because you'll see with your own eyes and you'll hear with your own ears something different from what your parents saw with their eyes and heard with their ears and you know if they upheld that principle then they would have exceeded your grandparents who used their eyes and ears to believe whatever they saw many many years ago this is you know this Believing of the senses above preconceived notions, this is a principle that holds up generation after generation and around the world. So This will be a principle that I hold for myself and, you know, am sharing
1: on this podcast with others. Um, and, of course, not, not everybody is given that playbook, as we know. And so at least having, as you say, principles that have proven to work through, you know, an extended period of time and across cultures are gonna serve you well. And then also, will also protect you against, should we say, shallower and more temporary axioms or beliefs.
0: I think the world has to converge upon the idea that we are more, we are all as human beings more similar than different. It is b- because once we kind of meet people from different cultures, once we meet people of different generations, different sexual orientations, different religions, then if we care about truth, we're gonna see the similarities. Yeah. we all have to sleep We all have to eat. We all want to be treated decently. Mm-hmm. There is, you know and, such a And
1: thing. and generally speaking people have essentially the same pro-social Values they might come in they may manifest themselves in different ways. They may have come from different paths
0: One other thing I'm gonna say about why we have to exceed our parents It's that younger people have to be on the planet longer People being born today, as I'd mentioned, they're probably you know, if they live a normal length life, they're gonna see the twenty second century. And if everything happens in the natural order, I am going to outlive my parents, just like they outlived their parents if everything happens in the natural
1: order. And it's more likely you'll you'll outlive them by some greater degree as your life expectancy increases across generations.
0: Yes. So often, older generations say, well, I've been on the planet longer. I I know more than you do. I have more life (laughs) experience. But also, they have less of a future timeline that they have to live in. Whereas younger people, sure, they have less life experience. But I think out of necessity, they have to look more to the possibility of living in the 22nd century and what that world is actually going to look like. Let's say socially, let's say environmentally. And I think that's part of the reason why younger people tend to be more liberal because they do have to think about what the world is gonna be like when they grow older. Whereas, you know, when I'm 80 years old, I only have to look forward to like maybe like a five or 10 year timeline. And it's not that I don't care that, you know, after I'm gone that people are, you know, are going to be happy. It's It just comes with a territory that I'm not going to think as deeply about it hmm. as a younger person will.
1: This is quite a sort of a, an oddly optimistic uh, session in the sense that this shows a, a certain amount of faith in humans in general to be adaptable, to be able to learn and live by time-proven culture-proof axioms that if you do that then you're more likely to raise children that will exceed you in their turn and not just carry on all your sins bad traits and foibles and failures right so so this is an encouraging this is an encouraging idea is that there is a pathway that uh, is an optimistic one. It's not a case of oh, you know, the older generation has screwed things up and it's now it's now irreparable and um, uh, you know the young people should stay in nihilism and despair. You know, which is also a narrative that is kind of kind of thrown around as Absolutely. well. Absolutely,
0: and we're going to have a future episode about how to deal with climate anxiety, mm-hmm. just as one example of why the nihilism and, and the despair. But you are right that I am speaking. To, to advocate for a view of the future that accounts for human adaptivity and resilience and our ongoing capacity to, to, to learn as the world changes uh, around us. And you are right that I do see this kind of optimism as more of a helpful orientation than nihilism. So I would say uh, I'm guilty as charged.
1: Mm. Well, good. Well, I hope that's helpful to to anybody watching or listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the
0: kinds of things that you've heard us talk about here, Pascal and I are both available for hire through the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada. I wouldn't be too concerned about the H word, hypnosis because it's a lot more rational than it's often explained to be. And we have a free consultation process and a writing of treatment plans for new clients that you can engage in if you contact the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis at www.morpheusclinic.com.
1: If you're interested in what we have been talking about and how these thoughts are going to evolve over the next episodes, then please uh, subscribe on YouTube at Morpheus Hypnosis, or wherever it is you get your your podcasts. Look for How to Be an Adult. So, uh, yes, I'm looking forward to the next episode. Um, do you know what that's going to be?
0: It's why we ought to live a principled life in the first place, as opposed to pursuing ego-driven desires, or pure pleasure, or the sheer um, raw exercise
1: of, let's say, power. So, if that interests you, uh, and I'm assuming that those who are purely interested in egocentric hedonism at the uh, uh, <laughs> the cost of everybody else, for the rest of us, please uh, uh, subscribe and uh, and follow us and. Yes, we look forward to uh, having another chat.